Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as Pastor Tim and the team are returning from Israel, we have yet one more special guest speaker. The Reverend Dr. J.P. Sundararajan is the Director of Global Mission for the Reformed Church in America, and he'll be sharing with us today some of his personal story and how missions around the world have impacted communities for Christ. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Dr. JP. Friends, it's so good to be here with you. Uh, my name is JP Sundararajan, as Jared said. I'm Director of Global Mission for the Reformed Church, and I've heard so many wonderful things about your church. I've got to know your pastor, uh, Tim Wilson, pretty well. So this is just good to be here. Um, I forgot my reading glasses on the way here today, so I'm going to be squinting a lot. And I just am very aware that I'm getting older, and uh, the older I get, uh, there are certain things that just become solidified, right? Like there are things you just know now with certainty. Um, And for me, that is this, that there are only two kinds of people in this world. Um, There are people who like to camp, and then there's the rest of us. Um, (laughs) I say this because my, my wife, Katie, is from upstate New York, And uh, we got married in 2004, and it's one of those things. I'm from the city called Bangalore, which is on the other side of the world. It's as city as city gets, right? So 12 million people live there today. I grew up in the heart of the city. My parents are missionaries, so I grew up, like, doing the mission thing. So the idea of coming to the U.S. and then for vacation, going somewhere, pitching a tent where there's no running water, and doing all these things and calling it vacation and relaxing just did not make any sense. But this was a very big deal for Katie's family. And so when we got married and she discovered this about me, that I had never been camping, she was like, we've got to do this. This is what we did. And I was like, okay, this is not my cup of tea. Um, But I have to prove my mettle, right? Like as a husband and as somebody who can be like, I can do hard things. And so I was like, all right, Katie, you figure it out. And so she like found a spot where her family used to always camp up somewhere in upstate New York. She kept using the word bear country a lot. And I was like... (laughs) I don't know what this all means, but let's give this a shot, right? And so she said, okay, we got to find, and she, she, there's a science behind this. I didn't know this, but like where you pitch your tent is important. It's away from everybody else. There's a traffic, but this is where they are. Um, and then when we set up everything, she said, okay, see that path that goes there? There's a little faucet. We'll fill water, and then you can bring it back, and then we'll do the dishes, and then we got to dump the water into the woods because bears, right? And so I was like, okay, this is strange, but whatever, let's do this. And so every day I would get up, and I think that path, I, would, I think I counted. On average, it was 617 times I walked up and down that pathway. <laughs> Everything that had to be done had to go involve that pathway to that faucet, back, back into the woods, back. And that is when I also discovered something very interesting. People who go camping, no matter how rude you might be in real life, when you go camping, super friendly. Everybody's super friendly. And so every time I would walk by, this guy next door, right, in this little campsite would look at us, and he'd be like... How's it going? And by the time I realized somebody was talking to me, I'd passed his campsite. That was a little awkward, right? Like, like somebody's talking to me, and then you're like, oh, um, I don't want to go back and be like, hi. So I ignored it. And a couple of days go by, and then I'm like, dude, he's being so nice. You could at least return the pleasantry. That's not that hard to do. And then day three goes by, and I'm still, this is not my thing. And then the whole, like, 
feeling bad for not returning the pleasantry turned into something a bit more ominous, a bit more embarrassing for me. I was like, at this point, he probably thinks I don't speak any English. And I was like, I got to figure that out. Um, so it was like day four or day five, whatever, it was the last day. Katie and I were like reading on the beach, and Katie had to go back early, and then it was my turn, right? And you pick up your, your book, and then you grab the chair and the blanket, and you do this like camper's wobble back to your tent. And, and I see this guy sitting out there. And I'm like, okay, this is your final chance. You can basically take care, put all these demons to rest. Like, you can be kind, you can tell them you speak English well, whatever, right? But, but you have to realize this. Americans, you all have all kinds of greetings that involve a certain kind of response, right? I know this when I came to college in Northwest Iowa. People, when they say, how's it going? Apparently, the right response to how's it going is, how's it going? You just say the question back to that person. <laughs> And the other thing I realized is also when somebody says, what's up, no matter how exciting your life is, you always say, not much, what's up with you? Um, and I say this because one time, one time, I remember in college when somebody said, what's up, I said, plenty. And that led to like 15 seconds of awkward silence because nobody knew what to do with that. So I have like all these rehearsals in my head going through of what I should say if this man says something to me. All set, and I'm walking. And he looks at me and he says to me, catch the sunset? I was not planning on that question. Um, I had like a split second to react. And my response to him was, I read book. And then I went back to my tent. So this is me, really. I mean, I can do all these other things. But really, I'm just an awkward guy who's trying to fit in. Um, Jared is right. Um, RCA Global Mission is the oldest Protestant mission sending agency in North America. And it, for me, has been one of those really unbelievable stories of what God used this tiny little Dutch denomination to do, punching way above its weight around the world. But what's really exciting for me is I actually like that lyric in the song, you turn seas into highways, because we would send all these missionaries on boats, on one-way trips, right? Like they would go somewhere and basically, essentially that boat in some way served as a coffin. You'd go serve and when you died, you were brought home. That was it. And so our missionaries did unbelievable things, connecting in the Middle East uh, with royal families before oil was discovered. The first baptisms in Japan, the first schools in most of these countries were built by our people. But what's really cool for me is that these pads that were rustically carved out by our people, they really were never meant to be one-way paths by sea. They have become two-lane highways. And from the very places that we send our people to, to go and till that hard soil, to plant seeds in hard places, fruit's being born. And that fruit is now coming back to North America on the same paths that were carved by our people. And so from places where we sent people like Scudders and Zwamer, the first missionary to the Middle East and the first missionaries to Japan, we're now getting back people like Daniel Pushki, who your church has been instrumental with the Hungarian Reformed Church in setting up partnerships there, or Yakub, who is one of your very own. Um, this is an exciting time because God is really not done working in those places there, but God is now inviting people from those places to come back and tell the North American church that, hey, 
I'm not done with you either. We have work to do, but, but help is on the way. And it's from the very places that we have invested our blood, sweat, and tears. And friends, this is good news. And so, for all the work we've done, today is not going to be me telling you stories of all these things that are going on. I want you to know that before we even went there, <laughs> before the oldest Protestant mission sending agency sent people over, God was already there. God's spirit was moving. God's spirit was working. And it's that same God who sees us, who seeks us, and who constantly works in us and through us. So my hope today is that you find yourself in God's redemptive story through Jesus on the cross. Today I'm going to share a story. It's going to be my story. And while the characters and the storyline will seem a little bit like a Bollywood movie with possibly some dancing involved, uh, there won't be any dancing. But um, I don't want you to think that this is a story from India. This is a story about JP. But it's really the story of God. And what I'd love for you is to find points of resonance where your life might intersect in it. So before we get into all that, I want to read a passage of Scripture. This is my favorite passage of Scripture, and I'm going to set that as the screensaver upon which I will tell the story. It's Genesis 28, verses 10 through 17. Again, no reading glasses, so I hope I'm getting this right. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place, and he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Verse 15, know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Know that I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Know that I am with you. So here's the deal. In Scripture, for every Jacob, there is an Esau. Just like for every Isaac, there is an Ishmael. For every Mary, there is a Martha. For every Joseph, there is a Reuben. For every Ruth, there is an Orpah. For every David, there is an Eliab. And these people that I mentioned second, they're not bad people. In fact, I will contend that they were probably better candidates for God's blessings, and yet God chooses to go through the unknowns. And if I were to be honest with you, the ones that none of us would have picked. 
Like I said, I was born in the city of Bangalore on the other side of the world. If you were to take a train ride and go further south into the heart of a state called Tamil Nadu in the southern peninsula of India, there are these villages where my parents are from. Now, when I say villages, most often people I've noticed in North America uh, imagine an African village. Indian villages are different. They're huge for one. Like my dad's village today is about 120,000 people who live in it. Um, my dad's father, my grandfather, was the head of the village. In fact, that village that my dad and dad grew up in, it was basically founded by my dad's great-great-grandmother. And to this day, the village bears her name. So my dad is born into this home. His father is a very wealthy leader, descended from a bunch of leaders. And my dad was the firstborn son in this home. So wealth and influence just ran rampant in this family. And if you know anything about Asian cultures, being the firstborn son in a family like this is a really big deal. Life was good. I mean, this is how they grew up. Um, they, my, my dad's mother kind of raised him to worship the family gods and goddesses. Life was good. They had everything going for them. My dad was raised in this household, and he was about a teenager, right? And that's when all this, and some of you teenagers get this, there's a lot of angst that sets in. For my dad, the angst was actually a strange angst. He said it was like there was a vacuum in his heart. He didn't know what it was. It just felt like there's something missing. And what he called it was peace. There was peace that was missing. And he did not know what to, like, where do you go to get this peace? He had zero idea. And you should also remember, the parts of the world that I'm talking about right now, the name Jesus is not mentioned. This is places where that is just not even in people's vocabulary. You don't hear about this. So the, the, the Christian idea, you just had to set aside for a second. So imagine a home like this. What do you do, right? So my dad looks around, and he looks at his father, my grandfather, and my grandfather Oddly enough, was one of India's freedom fighters, but he belonged to the Communist Party. He was a communist leader in a very Hindu country. And my dad said, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what I need to do. I become like him, become a communist, and maybe, maybe through communism, I can both help my community that I'm called to lead, but also maybe I find this peace in the process, right? And so my dad... He kind of went to his father and said, Dad, this is what I think I should do. I think I'm going to become a communist. I want to finish high school. I want to go to college. I want to major in political science. And then I want to go to Russia, which is then the Soviet Union. I want to do my PhD work in communism studies and bring it back to India and spread it because that might be it. My grandfather, I mean, he was so proud. His firstborn child is going to follow in his footsteps. This is beautiful. Of course, go do what you want to do, right? So my dad finishes high school goes to college, majors in political science, and gets involved in the student wing of the Communist Party. Now, you can say what you want about the communists, but they recognized leadership very early on. And in my dad, they saw their future star. So they kind of fast-tracked him. He was beginning to rise the ranks very quickly in the Student Communist Party, soon was head of that chapter. And it's like one of those things, right? Like, you start this journey where you hope at the end of this rainbow there's that pot of gold. And, but there is this little gnawing voice in your, in your heart that you ignore. And that's really what was happening to my dad. He wasn't sure this was the way to go, but he put all his eggs into this one basket. And he's about more than halfway through his college experience when he realizes to his horror that that vacuum still remained. There was no peace. 
What do you do? He had put, all, he put everything, all his hopes into this thing. This was going to take care of everything, and now he is looking at a wall, shattered, despondent, depressed. And in desperation, in his room, he looks around, and he sees a Bible, a vault, picks it up. Now, if I were to give you a Bible and say, read something, you might find some, a favorite passage of yours to read it. But if you have never held a Bible in your hand, where do you start? So my dad takes his Bible, and, I mean, he's literally just flipping through the pages. He's not even sure what he's looking for, right? Flipping through the pages, flipping, flipping. It just so happened that one of the very few Christians on campus walks down the hallway at that precise moment, and he peeks into the room, and he sees the president of the Student Communist Party reading his holy book. Those two things do not add up, okay? So he comes running in, and he's like, is that a Bible you're reading? And my dad at this point, like, you do not want to be caught dead holding a Bible if you're a communist. So he slams the Bible, throws it under his bed, he's like, what are you talking about? And the guy's like, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Can I ask you what you are reading? And my dad is like, you know, this is not the time to try any Jedi mind tricks. This guy saw me reading the Bible, I might as well own up to it. And he says to him, actually, yeah, I, I was reading the Bible, but I was reading it to find mistakes in it so I can argue with you guys. And the guy said, that's, that's perfect. There's a little group of us that meets in this coconut grove on campus. You should come. Bring your questions with you. We'd love to talk to you about it. Okay, I'll be honest. Holding a Bible in your room is one thing, but going to a gathering with these weird people, completely different ballgame. My dad does not have any desire to go meet with these guys because the Christians honestly were strange because they worship invisible beings, they sing these funny songs, they dunk people in water. There's all these things they do that just did not make sense in this worldview. You don't want to be with them. But what do you do, right? Like, I mean, he kind of caught you reading his book. He's embarrassed. And my dad's this, just to kind of ward off the shame, he's like, I'll go, I'll go. Sure, I'll go. Just leave. <laughs> So my dad makes his way to this coconut grove to meet these ragtag group of Christians, right, in the middle of nowhere India. And they have this little Bible study of sorts. And my dad sits there, and Jared, music was great this morning. That was not so great back there, apparently. The music was terrible. Um, the pre they didn't have anything special that was said or shared that night that was like, how a story should end, right? In fact, it was so frustrating that my dad, halfway through the meeting, got up and he left. So I always put myself in the shoes of those Christians in this particular university. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to imagine how excited they were that they finally, because Christians are such an oppressed minority in India. And now these brothers were probably ones who had been looked on on for their entire life just for their faith, right? And now they had a chance. One of the leaders on campus was coming to their Bible study. Imagine if God changed him. Maybe a revival could happen on campus. So they had all of these visions, I know, no doubt, dancing in their head, and halfway through the meeting, it all just walks out. What do you do? <laughs> They're crushed. But then they did something that to this day I will forever be grateful for. They looked at each other and they said, we're not going to give up. We're going to pray for 10 days and invite him back. 
So they prayed their hearts out for 10 days, and one guy was given the thankless job of going back to my father and inviting him back to the coconut grove, right? So this time my dad sees them coming a mile away, and he's like, are you kidding me? Like, I was there. There's, that is not what I'm looking for. I'll be honest. Like, that is not it. Um, and so there's no embarrassment. Now it's just pure, like, anger. He meets them with anger. He's like, what are you guys doing here? This is not what I want. Like, they have this back and forth. Now, to their credit, these guys were patient, kind, but persistent. It's that story of the squeaky wheel getting the grease, right? Like, they were just there. They only had one objective, to get my dad back to the coconut grove one more time. And so they, were, they poured out the grace, the kindness, everything. So my dad, after a while, was just like, these guys are not leaving. And so he made a deal with them. He said, okay, I'll go to that meeting one more time. But after that is done, this is done. I do not want to talk to you. We will be ships passing through the night. Do we have a deal? And they were like, sure. And so my dad, against all, everything in his being uh, that said to him, stay, he decided to go one more time to the coconut grove. And again, there was nothing special that happened that night. But my dad had to endure that hour because he promised this, you know, like it's the longest hour of his life, but he made a deal with these guys. He was going to sit through it or they'll be back at his door. <laughs> meeting goes on. Meeting is done. And they all close with a time of prayer. And everybody prays. And my dad's under no obligation to pray, but something prompts him to pray a prayer which goes like this. He said, God, I don't know if you exist. These people say you do. Now, if you are who they say you are, then give me this peace I'm looking for. If you can give me this peace, I will work for you the rest of my life. You talk about throwing down the gauntlet, right? Like it is the ultimate Hail Mary of sorts. What is the worst that could happen? <laughs> Meeting disbands. Everybody begins their walk back to the room. And on that walk back to his room, for the very first time in his life, my dad experienced the peace of Christ. And being a genuine seeker of this peace, when he felt it, when he experienced it, he knew this is unlike anything else. So he turned around and went back to this group of his newfound <laughs> fellowship, his brothers, and said, okay, what is going on? And that's when they explained to him about the work of the Holy Spirit. And that night, my dad surrendered his life to Christ. It's a very dangerous prayer to be praying, and yet that's what happened. And then my dad wrote a letter home to his father, and he said, dear dad, I have decided to become a Christian. And uh, that set off a flurry. of It's a firestorm because my dad becoming a Christian is a really big deal in a, in a, in a high-caste, respected community like my father's. Um, it's akin to your kid having a curse pronounced on them or catching leprosy in some ways. Uh, your son becoming a Christian would mean that the rest of the siblings who are waiting to get married off, they're wedding alliances will be broken. My grandfather was a businessman. All his business transactions would be, would be affected because of my, the simple act of my dad deciding to follow Jesus would set off all of these things. So my grandfather, for good reason, was like, uh-oh, my son got into the wrong crowd, right? This is what a, a parent's response would be. And he said, whatever you're doing, leave everything behind and come home immediately. 
my dad left everything behind and came back to the village, and my grandfather just watched him like a hawk, right? Like, in his head, and I can totally see this, like, he fell into the wrong crowd. First step, get him away from the bad crowd. Let's kind of reprogram him into thinking like our family or even like a communist, but we can't have him be a Christian. So my dad comes home. He's a faithful son, but with a new faith. And my grandfather is watching him, and two things happen that my grandfather is not planning on. One is my dad is getting stronger and stronger in his faith in spite of anybody influencing him. And second, my dad's siblings were now getting interested. So my grandfather called him one day and he said, hey, this is not how I expected this to go, but here we are. Look around you. Everything you see is going to be yours one day. Everything. But you cannot be a Christian. Now, if you want to be a fool about this and you want your Jesus, you have to realize that there's no room for you in our home. Your choice. What do you want to do? And my dad looked at his father and said these words that are etched into our families, you know, like, histor- like in our DNA right now. His, his words to his father were, all your wealth and all your influence will never give me what Jesus already did. If those are my choices, then I choose the path of Jesus. And that would then set into motion these wheels that would lead to my dad being ostracized by his own family. And this is a really big deal. Like I said, this is a village that essentially, I mean, everything about that village was my dad and his family. That's his world. And one morning after a public ceremony, my dad ceased to be a son, a cousin, a friend, neighbor, everything. The only home, the village that he had ever known rejected him. And in fact, he left the village with the clothes on his back, and that was it. And his last words to the village were, you know, my God will provide all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And it's like this, doesn't it sound like a Bollywood movie, though? But anyway, so my dad leaves. And my grandfather, you need to know, is not the bad guy in this story. It's like the, it's like the story of the prodigal son. He kind of pitched a proverbial lawn chair and waited for the prodigal to return. Because what will happen is that this is a spoiled rich kid, right? I mean, he's going to need food. He's going to need clothing. He's going to realize the real world has got so many problems, and there's comfort here. When everything runs out, he's going to come home. And so my grandfather sat and waited and waited. My dad, meanwhile, everywhere he went, he told his story. It was a beautiful twist of irony, right, that my dad was actually trained to be a preacher by the Communist Party. He just had a whole different message. (laughs) And so he went, he was just doing this unbelievable thing. He loved languages, got into the world of Bible translation, was working on the translation of the Tamil Bible, which is one of the languages I speak. My grandfather waits and waits, and when he realizes the prodigal is not returning, His heart, as a father, goes out, and he's like, I need to go after him. And so my grandfather finds my dad in the city of Chennai, an even bigger city than Bangalore. My dad's working on the translation, and he finds my father, and he says to him, your Bible that you love so much, is there not a passage in there that talks about honoring your parents? So my dad's like, he feels like he's being backed into a corner here. But he said, yeah. How can I honor you, Dad? And he said, well, you can honor me by marrying the girl I choose. 
Again, arranged marriages to this day, pretty common in India. And back then, even more so. It was almost always, like by default, it was an arranged marriage. But my dad was hoping to marry another Christian so they could grow in their faith and serve together, etc. And so he told his father, absolutely, can you just make sure that she's a Christian? <laughs> my grandfather looked at him and was like, are you serious? Like, you are the only Christian in our entire community. Where am I going to find a Christian bride for you? Then he said, well, you say your God is all-powerful. Well, if he's all-powerful, he can change her too. So my dad goes, prays about it, and then he'll always say this, it's not recommended, but (laughs) he went back to his father and he said, okay, you find the girl, I will marry her. And thus, my friends, was launched the greatest search in South India's history, right? (laughs) To find the most perfect bride who could bring my father back to the family's old way. And they scoured every nook and cranny. This is a well-resourced, well-connected family. And they finally found the perfect bride for my father, who today is my mom. My mom had just finished college. She had, like, a passion for her family's religion. But for her, she found Christians to be very narrow-minded. When you have a pantheon of gods you worship... To add Jesus on that list is not a big deal. What she hated about Christians was like, why do you have to insist that Jesus is the only way? She could not understand that. And so whenever missionaries came into town, she was the one who was heckling them, asking them questions. And and they were like, perfect. She would be perfect. And so my mom and dad, they met the day they were married. All my mom was told was the person you're going to marry has fallen into Christianity. Your job is to bring him out, but don't worry about it. His family, our family, same team. He's the only one. And they were like, okay. And my mom was like so headstrong. She, was, she said, two months. That's all I need, two months. And so, so they got married in what my dad describes to be a very bizarre wedding ceremony because it was like the bride's family, groom's family, all... The, the groom was the only Christian, and he had two Baptist or five Baptist preachers run the show. Um, so, but after the wedding was done, my dad's prayer was, God, you brought her into my life. I am not going to force my beliefs on her. I'm going to entrust her faith to you. I'm going to faithfully keep doing what you've called me to do, which is the translation work of the Tamil Bible. But you, you lead her to you because I can't do it. And I will be a good husband, and I will be a good in-law and a good son, but I will not force my beliefs on her. And faithfully, my dad kept doing what he was doing. My mom, on the other hand, she had an agenda, and she had a timeline that she self-imposed or not, but she had a timeline. And so she, every opportunity she had, she would mock, question, ridicule my dad as to why he had to turn his back on his family and his culture, why he had to say no to all of them, and why can't he just add Jesus to that list? Why do you have to keep insisting that Jesus is the only way? Boom, 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 boom. And my dad would patiently answer all her questions, but never once did he want to forcefully tell her what she should do. He kept doing the work. Time goes on. My mom realizes, you know, I'm an educated woman, and I'm sitting here in the middle of nowhere, India, on a, my translators, missionaries, 
they don't like make a lot of money. And so my mom comes from another wealthy family of milk merchants. She always said, whatever I wanted, I got. And here we were living on this pittance of a salary. God provided our needs, but I had so many wants. And so she said to my father, you're working from home. This is before working from home was cool, okay? Um, <laughs> if I do what you do, can I get paid for it? My dad was like, oh, uh, I don't know. Let's find out. And so he talked to his bosses, and they said, no, no, no. We have enough translators. Besides, the translation work is almost done. But what we do need is somebody to make a legible copy of whatever you scribble. My dad's handwriting is atrocious. Um, and it's like, and translators in general just have really bad handwriting. You need somebody to make a legible copy. So when it gets printed, you don't have a Bible with typos. Does your wife have good penmanship? So my mom sent in some samples, and they were receiving samples from everybody, but they loved my mom's handwriting the best. And so my mom got the job, and she was so pumped because she was going to make more money transcribing than my dad did translating. Um, and she was, like, completely in it for the money, but what she didn't realize was, in essence, God paid her to read and write the New Testament three times. And was a reading of the Gospel of John... Um, the third time she said, she heard Jesus asking her in her heart, am I still one among many? And she said at that point, the third reading of the Gospel of John, the third reading of the New Testament, really, she said, I could no longer say yes. Her mind's eye, she said, was open to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And this is her journey. My dad wasn't even home when this happened. So he comes back from his, little, his mission trip. My mom meets him at the door, and she says to him, I've decided to follow Jesus. And my dad, he's very, if you know him, he's very matter-of-fact. It's almost like he knew this was going to happen. So he said, praise the Lord. They went in, and he said, you know what we have to do now? And so they wrote two letters. One was sent to my mom's family, and one was sent to my dad's family, kind of sharing with them what actually happened. And... Um, Neither of those letters are hung in their living rooms today, by the way. They were not well-received. My dad's, my mom's family, they kind of were a bit more quiet in terms of they had to ostracize my mom as well. So she was disowned by her family, but that was done a bit more quietly. My dad's family just kind of lost it. I mean, it was a very volatile reaction where they just completely went ballistic. This was not according to the script. This was terrible. And so my mom and dad were both disowned for their faith, and it was into that home that I was born uh, a few months later. And my brother James, uh, who also serves now on the mission field, was born about 15 months after I was born. We were, we were raised um, in a family of outcasts. That was our story. Um, and every year, my parents would tell us their story, the way I'm telling you the story. But in the beginning, it was very very G-rated, and then it got a little PG, and it's like they never told us the whole story. They always would tell us just what we were able to understand, and they would slowly add textures. And I asked my parents this, like, later on when I fully understood the story of the pain and loss that came with this, why didn't they tell us? And they said to me, one day, God's going to bring everybody into this fold. But until that day, as parents, we are not going to be responsible for sowing seeds of poison into the hearts of our children, which is one of the kindest gifts my parents have ever given me, because I could have grown up to be very angry with the way people treated my family. But instead, I grew up thinking, 
my relatives were super busy because they never came to visit us, or socially awkward because when we visited them, they never spoke to us. Um, but you know, when you grow up in a home like this, there are two lessons that come to mind very quickly. One, there's, there's power in God's word, be it from the simple act of flipping through the Bible in your college dorm room or having God pay you to read his word. It can change your life. And second, there is a cost involved in following Jesus. And my parents had paid that. But for me, the greatest lesson I learned from that, and I shared the, the screensaver earlier about Jacob, is this. God's promises aren't reserved for the best of the best. Jacob, if you actually read his story, if you haven't, I would so encourage you to go read it, is kind of the outcast. He's the one that really Esau is a way better character for God's blessings to flow through. And Jacob was the one who was stealing. He was lying. He was manipulative. He stole from his blind father. He did all these atrocious things. And God said, even through Jacob, through this quote-unquote loser, I'm going to found a nation. God was not giving up on him. And God was not giving up on me. I grew up in a country that does not even boast a 2% composition that will call themselves Christian. And I'll be honest with you, friends. I am not very good at a lot of things. You heard my camping experience, but I also cannot sing. I cannot sing and clap my hands at the same time. I cannot swim. Um, I actually... I actually have a whole list of things I'm just really bad at doing. Um, and yet God called me, an average guy from that country where such a small percentage would even call themselves Christian, to be called his own. And not only that, to be given one of the most important tasks this universe has ever seen, to be God's ambassador to the world around me. And I stand here. I don't know your stories, but I suspect there is resonance there, isn't there? We're all just ordinary people. But God chooses us. When the world would say, that might be a better candidate, God says, I choose you. You get to be mine, and you get to tell this world that is hurting so badly about me. Know that I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Our personal insecurities aside, do we understand what an incredible honor this is? Before I close, I do want to show you a picture. This is the last image I have of my grandfather. My grandfather, like I said, was not the bad guy in the story. The story, in a very dramatic way that only God can engineer, would involve, in his last days, that my grandfather would move into the home of the son he rejected. And my grandfather died on the Lord a few years ago. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done 
what I have promised you. Know that I am with you. Friends, will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your incredible story that weaves in and out of our lives for bringing people from all walks of life under your umbrella, for South Harbor, for the Reformed Church in America, for the missionaries that you sent through us and the missionaries now you send to us. I thank you for the opportunity we have to be your ambassadors when you could so easily do it all on your own. I pray that in our brokenness, that your grace will flow out into a world so badly in need of healing. And in our unity, may the world know that we are yours. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.